Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you've been enjoying the show, please do consider contributing to our crowdfunder on the website Patreon. That's patreon.com slash always take notes. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards. One of them is a selection of successful magazine pictures from myself, Simon and previous co-hosts and friends of the show. Simon's going to tell us a little bit about our latest donor. It definitely is a little bit uh, because we don't know very much about her. But our latest Patreon is Ella Hill. Uh, We asked if she could tell us a bit of background about herself and we never heard back. But nonetheless, Ella, we're very grateful for your support and also wish you all the best with your writing. Very excitingly, we have just launched a new tier for our most generous supporters on Patreon, which are mini episodes from previous guests on the show. This week, you can listen to the wisdom of Laura Barber from Granter. Here's a tiny snippet. And she also helped me find ways of expressing my criticism positively rather than negatively so that the the note would be a less devastating thing to to receive. I still think of of editorial notes um, or still hope that my editorial notes land more like a hot air balloon gently drifting down to earth rather than like a rock being thrown at a writer. And I think that's related to... Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke to business journalist and author James Ashton. We spoke to James about the art of the CEO interview, his book, The Nine Types of Leader, and what it's like to move from working at a newspaper to working freelance. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. James, it's great to have you on Always Take Notes. Thank you for joining us. I wanted to start out by asking about the the business book as a genre of book. Um, you're kind of the first sort of business author we've we've had on the show. And Rachel, I were interested in knowing about how does the genre work? How does it divide between CEO memoirs, how-to books, like how big a literary market it is? And also, what do you think are the kind of standout examples of that genre? I think there are, are, well, thanks for having me on, first of all, Simon, and it's good to be the first of the genre, if you like. I think the way it splits, there are those how-to books, how to be an entrepreneur, how to improve yourself. Um, and then I think there are those, what I would call those the big corporate stories, maybe they're CEO memoirs, but more often, um, I think the, the really good ones are the narrative if you like of a of a company within a within the context of an industry and, and how that affects the, the world um the world around it. I think there's a, a fairly good split between the two. I think a lot of the publishers are really looking for those how-to books. I think the thing with um if you might call it a corporate story or a or a personal memoir, they're always thinking, is this the sector that people want to read about um how does this work internationally how does this work in america as you will know huge market for um all books and particularly business books and i think that's why you've seen in the last five to ten years such a slew of the tech focus books so you've had big books on you've had ashley vance on um elon musk uh you've had the instagram book relatively recently that that, that won awards and um, Satya Nadella and, and so on and so on. So I think there's a real fascin- fascination with how they're making it work in Silicon Valley. Do you get a sense that it's a market that still has room for growth or is it? do you think it's approaching saturation? I found a sort of stat that the British Book Awards receive more than 150 entries a year, which is sort of comparable to the number of entries that the Booker Prize gets. Um, struck me as quite a um, a large volume. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think there's a I think there's a challenge for anyone who who's consuming all media. There's quite a lot of 
uh, stuff to get through. I think if there is, I think it's segmented quite well. So uh, I think if you're particularly into leadership or you know banking or tech, then there'd be a set number of titles that you might um, you might go for. I think where some of the growth has come um, is the way that people are consuming these books, uh, and I think audio has been very good for the business book market because you can really you know in the same way kind of in kind of in competition with podcasts i suppose you can kind of soak up big ideas over eight or ten hours um over the course of a, a week or two weeks and is the big hope that you get a book that gets on the harvard business school reading list or are they they're kind of institutional imprimaturs for the the most successful examples of this sort of thing um I think I mean don't forget you know, and, and uh, you know I'm still fairly new to to the books world so I suppose the first hope is that um, the publisher accepts it um, and then I think um, there are those obvious places that you go for acceptance I think the FT McKinsey um, business book award is is a really good one and has, has built a reputation to it but I think Harvard also as well um, helps I think there are, I think there are other um, there are other awards, there are other acceptances. And um, it, I think also the book is a the book is a unit in itself, but also uh, I almost look at the book as a, um, not quite a collection of columns, but a collection of ideas. And there are things in there that I, in the ones that I've written, hopefully I can carry on disseminating over um, many, many months. We are going to talk about your, your book a bit a bit later on, but could we talk about your entry into journalism um, first? I'm particularly interested to hear more about the Huddersfield Daily Examiner's Junior Journalist Competition. Well, I credit you for reading that um, that section, and I was just checking some of the facts with my dad earlier on. So, <laughs> look, we were... Um, uh, we are always a newspaper family. My dad is a is a two newspaper a day man. He he was then and he and he still is now. And actually, he worked at the Examiner. He was I checked the facts earlier. He was an apprentice compositor for two years, and he quit uh, because he had to work Saturdays and he wanted to play football. And actually, it was the so the Examiner ran this competition. So I was maybe thirteen, fourteen, and literally the junior journalist competition was they printed an empty grid. And the challenge for individual kids or for schools was fill the grid. And it was as, it was as simple as that. And you and I entered through the school and also individually, you had to go out into the into the town, talking to friends and talking to people, finding stories, making judgments. This works on the front page. I remember interviewing a, a, a great school friend of mine who had um, he'd been a really great swimmer and um, and uh, his knees had gone. I mean, I think for training seven seven days a week, his, his knees had gone. So I remember my back page headline, the sports section was something like retired at 13. And, um, <laughs> and if I'd have known then, I was always destined to spend some time at the Daily Mail. Um, it's interesting. I, and I think... Sorry, go, go ahead, James. I was going to say, and I think that's where the, that's where the, the bug came. It was also a time, um, if you, you may not remember, but this series on ITV called Press Gang, it, it, made, it made journalism... Uh, pretty cool for kids, I think, at the time. I actually was in Halifax for a week last year doing this uh, this big 
COVID contact tracer story. Um, so it's, a, it's a part of the world I saw, I saw a little bit of then. But I wanted to ask ask you, and this is something we ask everyone um, about the, the, the period they grew up in. So how was the media landscape then when you were starting out, maybe not, not when you were 13, but when you were in your, in your 20s and so forth. And what we, what we ask people to do is to look back with absolutely no rose-tinted spectacles on. So, you know, don't give us a sort of huge encomium about huge expense accounts and lavish Fleet Street lunches. Like, what was what was good in those days what and what was bad like just just tell it as straight as straight as you can really i mean wait, uh, which which job in particular i wonder that would be um i mean my first job was at um was at reuters it wasn't for the newswire it was writing on there was a number of specifically tailored industry desks and i wrote about advertising and uh and, and marketing and that was really the early days of the internet so i think the big difference from then to now is is how you would research something. It's it's so much easier to research everything you want to do now using either just Googling or using a LexisNexis or, or something. And thinking back then to um, maybe early times, not at Reuters so much, but early times in newspaper offices, I remember there were, um, there was a every newspaper would have a great library service. There would be people diligently cutting out your clippings, but also every clipping. So you could research something very much in, um, you know, in the physical sense. And I think some newspaper offices had one internet terminal, which was shared between everyone. So it was quite limited. This makes me sound ancient, by the way. It really wasn't that long ago. <laughs> um, so I think actually how you research a story is um, has become so much easier. And I suppose that means that you have fewer excuses for not being thorough these days. And I think the thing that benefited from them it's different because you go from from junior to senior so your your view on on how it works changes but i think i think there was it feels like there was a lot more time but a lot of people will say that to you i'm sure yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, James. I didn't want to suggest you, you came up in like the 1940s as a reporter, which people might have might have had that impression. Um, Rachel, do you want to take the next question? Well, I was going to say, could we sort of talk on those formative years and your entry into journalism in a bit more detail, just because I know that it's a subject of real interest to some of our listeners. I know you went to the University of St Andrews where you edited the student newspaper and then you did a postgraduate degree at City. Could you tell us a little bit about both of those experiences and why you wanted to pursue the postgraduate route? I think at St Andrews, I mean, there is a, um, so with St Andrews, the the die was cast, I think I was always drawn to the, the student paper. I had some passing interest in radio, but there was no student radio in St Andrews, quite a small town. And it's interesting when you're an undergraduate, I think your, um, your how would I put it, your, um, your, your horizons expand, but you uh, you just get quite lazy. So I did go for a, f- a few times I did go in and help out at uh, TFM, which was the the uh, radio station in Dundee, um, which was a couple of bus rides away, and and really I just I thought I just can't be bothered with this, and 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 the, the student paper was there. It was it was a great publication, and I thought I really should be should be doing this. I mean, the Chronicle, as was in, in St Andrews, was was one of those rare student papers um, because it had financial freedom. Um, a lot of the big blue chip recruiters put ads in the paper. So that meant that um, we could run and we didn't need the, the money behind us from the student union. We weren't beholden to what the, um, to, to what they were saying. Um, so that was a really, that was a really great time. And I'm sure I spent as much time in that office as I did doing my English degree. And then the, the question leaving St. Andrews after four years, well, was um, 
how do I convert this? How do I turn this into a career? And the obvious direction is one of the postgraduate courses, those one-year uh, diplomas. And uh, it was a choice between City and Cardiff. And I went towards um, City in London. And by that time, actually, because I wanted to try and stand out in the application process, I took it on myself to um, to show willing. And I'd done a lot of work experience. Um, so I did stints with the Herald in Glasgow, the Scotsman, the Yorkshire Post and the South Wales Echo. It was kind of like a, a UK tour, if you like. Um, but just a and I just thought these are great. I just need to stand out on this application for for City because because if it wasn't City or Cardiff, I didn't quite know what the plan was. And um, yeah, and it was all fine in the end. Could you tell us about that experience of the City course? How how useful did you find it? What did it cover? Um, and how did it open doors to your next step? I think it was um, yeah. There's a few there's a there's a few reasons why it's um, incredibly useful. I think there is the learning of those skills that you absolutely groan about at the time. I mean, 9am shorthand, Monday to Friday from memory, um, was, you know, it was, um, you know, it was, it was something to groan about. Um, but there were some of those writing uh, exercises, the visits to the courts. There's one I remember, actually, uh, I don't think it was called the A to Z challenge, but it, it should have been, um, where each of us, I think there was 30 of us on the course, the tutor gave us a page from the A to Z and said, um, okay, just go out and get a story and um, see you in a few hours. And uh, I just thought that was, as someone that didn't know London at all at the time, um, I think I ended up in Victoria Park and the, there was, by the end of the day, there was something about um, uh, botulism in the um, in the geese on the lake or something. That's what I, that's what I came back with. So that was good. Um, but I think the main, I mean, you talked about the opening door, Simon. I think that's very, very valid. I think there's the shared experience of, of going through something with, something like that with um, with uh, 30 others, you know, several who, of whom I'm um, still in touch with. And then I think there is the opening of the of, of doors, which um, I certainly don't think I had from the um, from the days back at home in in West in West Yorkshire. And, you know, people if people wanted to recruit then and I, and I would hope it's the same now, a, a lot of media organizations know they can go to city, they can go to Cardiff and they can find somebody coming off. Um, you know that production line, and actually, it's through it's through City. I don't mind saying the the Reuters job came up. I hope that I hope the geese have recovered. I wondered as well whether your experience at um, local newspapers helped in that regard in terms of finding stories um, on a, maybe on a deadline, but also you know finding stories out of nothing, basically. I just think it was not. Yeah, it was it was nice to see because I think the 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 reason. The great thing about any for anybody being in their twenties in in journalism or younger is you you sit in an office when we sat in offices um, with people in their forties and fifties who um, who yeah they might be a bit short with you um, but that's their um, that's their right but you, even if you're just observing them um, doing their job and every time anyone asks me about um, work experience how to get it and what to do. Um, I would always say, well, if you do get to go in somewhere, just try to be useful. You know, don't expect you're going to be on the front page, um, you know, within a day or two. Actually offer to make the tea. I mean, that's a good that's a good way. Um, it's not it's absolutely not beneath anyone. Just be helpful and observe. And um, and the and the rest just follows. I remember seeing the um, the Herald always sticks in my mind. Um, I couldn't work out why 
um, there were some of the chief subs and the news editors seemed to, um, half of them seemed to disappear at about four or five o'clock. And um, the the office then, uh, I don't know which was built first, but there was kind of a pub encased in the in the office and they were sort of on a... Um, uh, they were kind of on a tag team going downstairs for a uh, uh, a quick sharpener just to see them through to the, um, uh, the first deadlines. Um, could you tell us about the, the Daily Iowan? I think that's the, the pronunciation <laughs> I've got. Your your time in the US and and what what your both you your experience in America and I suppose American versus British journalism really. Um, well, well done for finding that one. That was a scholarship that the city university, the city university ran. So in my in the August break, I went over to um, the Daily Iowan for about uh, a month, I think, which was great. And the Daily Iowan is is kind of that hybrid uh, student local newspaper. So it was. Um, staffed and run editorially by largely by students from the the University of Iowa but there was a um adult full-time uh, uh business team behind it and advertising and so on and bear in mind that uh, the Daily Iowan is in Iowa City um so it's not even in the capital of it's not even in the state capital of Des Moines so you're really being thrown in I always think the great thing about journalism the great thing about press trips and uh, can be you get to go to places that you would never otherwise go so it was a um, it was a real shock to the system, um, and they wrote. I think they're incredibly. Uh, I mean, I think we are in the UK, but the way they did it, um, there's almost a, a, a reverence to how they put the newspaper together um, every day, which I thought was really interesting. And um, I mean, they were curious uh, about how we worked, how London was. Um, I think it was it, this was around Britpop and so on at this time. So I had to write something about Britpop, and then they thought it'd be funny for the um, for the Brit to go and um, re- re- review the local Shakespeare play and see if it um, cut the mustard and so on. Did it? I think it did for the purposes of that review. It was probably a good idea that it did. <laughs> um, and from there, it was to Reuters. What were you doing? Um, you said you weren't doing the wire service aspect of it. What was your What was your role there? I did it a bit, but the the main thing um, Reuters had at the time was a number of specialist news desks, which they sold news on a certain topic. So we're all gathered in the same area. There was air cargo, advertising, insurance, and a couple of others. They sold that along very alongside various database products. So it was it was a reasonably good entry to um, professional journalism, and it was writing about. Uh, a lot of the companies and agencies out of Soho, but also there was an option to dig into things like the um, consumer trends and and things. And it's actually those stories. Um, I don't know. It might be how you know advertising was changing, or billboards were talking, or something that that worked. And um, so much of the Reuters content was carried in newspapers around the world. So it's quite nice to come in some days and find there's a cutting from the Chicago Tribune on my desk or something. Uh, that something had obviously travelled. Could you tell us about your your stint? You had stints in Yorkshire and Glasgow and Wales before uh, before working at Nationals in London. Could you tell us about that, both in terms of your own experience and then kind of how how that worked as a route? Because our sense is that you know historically that's what huge numbers of journalists have done, but a lot of those those regional newspapers have had a lot of 
difficulty with finances and so forth. So what, what was that journey like? Well, that wasn't um, that was only work experience. Those those ah, okay, regional right. titles. So they were done in the holidays uh, while I was at St Andrews. Ah, okay. I've, I've missed so the got first. End of that. Okay. No, no, it's all right. So from from St Andrews, it was the it was the straight year in, in at City, including the um, the Daily Iowan, and then um, from there into Reuters. So I think you're you're absolutely. I mean, it, you it. Um, it it used to be that great route from from the regionals into the nationals, and um, obviously that's a lot more uh, challenge now. And when you moved back to Britain, you uh, were part of the launch team for Business AM, which I think is the first attempt to launch a daily newspaper in Scotland for more than a hundred years. Why did you get involved with that, and what a, appealed about what appealed about it? <laughs> um, and sort of related to that, you studied in English literature, but you started to write about the city and finance a lot more. Um, I know you'd have done some of that at Reuters as well. Had you sort of had to re-educate yourself and do lots of learning in your spare time or had you sort of picked it up on the job? Well, when I left Reuters after 18 months, it seemed... Uh, and actually, so rewind, the the Reuters job was not um, first and foremost a financial job, although, of course, Reuters is, is, a, is a financial brand. So I got that. And then when I left Reuters after 18 months, it seemed to me the obvious thing was to... Um, go into that financial stream and and write to city editors and so on. So, I mean, there'd been various shifts and um, and stints at places uh, like the Telegraph and, and the Mail on Sunday. And the and Business AM um, came up. Uh, I knew some people who were joining. I think there was something quite joyful about uh, being part of a startup and helping to, to put it together. So um, I've always been based in London or surroundings. There were six months at Business AM I spent in Edinburgh, but largely in London looking after their um uh as one of their as one of their London team. And could you tell us about how you, you made your way through the, the major national titles? So that you, you had a column at the Sunday Times and then these executive jobs that you had at the Evening Standard and the Indy. How did that that part of your career develop? Well after Business AM um which ran for two and a half years and then effectively ran out of money after that closed um i uh spent a year at the scotsman and i've written more about scottish business than i ever thought i, w- I would ever have to have done um but it's all always all good experience um i mean from that i thought um uh trying to be as as um proactive as possible i thought look this, this is this is great i really enjoy this um i need to get on to i need to get on to a national um which was which was the daily mail and then after that i thought i needed to um test myself further so that was the 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 sunday times a really great place to do that and then i went over to be city editor at the evening standard and the independent and that was about running a team um so I, other than uh, after I picked up that um, Reuters job on the notice board at City, I don't think um, I don't think there's ever been any. I, I've never got a job so easily as easily as that as as that. And every other time, I've had to ring somebody up. Across those different titles, how did writing for them vary in terms of voice, in terms of tone, in terms of the audience that you were speaking to? Did you you know was there when you were writing the Inside the City column, for example, did you assume that you were writing to a very knowledgeable audience? I think um, there. I think the the style and the genre of business coverage used to be there. Used to be a great range um, of how 
uh, business in the city was covered and the Telegraph was a, was a little bit old school tie and the Guardian you would go to for coverage of, um, you know, environmental disasters because somebody's laid a pipeline across a, uh, a piece of land that they shouldn't have done. I think over the years, the, um, the, the coverage is as uh, homogenized slightly. It's not, that's not a bad thing, but, um, the, the coverage is, um, they're competing with with each other, uh, you know, a lot more. You you would imagine that something like I don't know the collapse of Arcadia, all papers would cover um, in a in a reasonably similar way, um, in a in a similar style. I think the things that I learned from those three, the Daily Mail um, was really uh, it's quite a tight business section at the Mail, so I think there was something about word economy there. I mean, the lead story then and the section isn't that similar now so the lead story is about 350 words you know every word counts I mean you could easily fill it but you, you've got to fill it as well as you can and I think I, I learned from the people I sat between there really how you tease the best out of your um, interview subjects um, there was a, a chap called Brian O'Connor I sat next to who um, d- does a wonderful impression of, of, a, of a stupid Irishman he is anything but he will sort of reel in the person he's, he's interviewing uh, and they won't know until about 15 minutes in that actually um, he's read their last five, five financial statements and he knows they're, they're running out of cash. So I think I, I learned a lot about how you operate on the phone and how you're very, very thorough there. At, at the Sunday Times, um, I think it's, um, it was, it's writing longer. I mean, their main piece in the city section is perhaps 2,000 words or, or used to be. So um, you can really stretch your legs a little bit and you need um, context and, um, and colour. Is, um, is it a more informed audience? I, I'm not sure it is. I think actually the, the Daily Mail is very, very good at um, staying close to its readers. That's one of the secrets of its success over many years. So I remember when something like um, O2, the mobile company, was, was taken over and we had um, letters from, you know, there was a huge uh, small shareholder base in O2 because it had been spun out of BT. And so a lot of shareholders didn't quite know what was going on, didn't know what their options were. And they wrote to us and they wrote to me because my name was on the, the articles of, of um that had covered it and one of the lessons I learned there is is you write back to every one of them I actually called a few and said look this is what's happening and um, I'm not giving you financial advice but this is this is what is going this is what is going to happen Um, so I think they were I think they're they're very informed and the 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 amount of correspondence was um, was remarkable yes so Sunday Times is the is the is the context and the color piece and really um, pushing and and seeing you know, where are those stories? Where where can I break something for the weekend? A real strong competition to get on the front page of the of the business section. And then at the evening standard, there's there was lots to pick up there about how you run and and um and motivate a team. But the beauty of the evening standard was was um I mean one journalist who's obviously feeling very poetic at the time said it was like um freshly fallen snow and because we published before they did um, we got to go out and and um, write about the Marks and Spencer profit warning um, before they did it's really really quick analysis and um, explanation to a uh, quite a sophisticated city audience and there's the beauty of the immediacy at the standard um, it's you you write it copy in by 11 edition gone by 12. Um, on the streets by one thirty-two, and you can see somebody at, at, at night for a drink and and you know we like to know people read our stuff don't we so it's great that you could have that conversation about your column that day that evening could we talk about the 
Art of the CEO interview. You're a prolific author of these. I think more than 350 of them that you've done. Could you talk us really through the, the kind of process piece from, from setting it up to the access to how long you get and then, you know, whether the demands, whether from the company and things like that. Really talk us, lift the lid on how that all works. I mean, I think there's, uh, there's, there's three things I think about when I'm doing it. I think what makes them work, it's, there's something of the who, the what, and a little bit of it is is the when. So I think these are great pages, these these profile pages, and I think the people that are run on them have to, you know, justify their existence. It has to be, you know, why is this person important? It's partly why I'm drawn to business journalism um, in the main is because I think um, the people who run the companies that are in our pension funds that in some way contribute to our uh quality of life and how we all work and how we will fill our time are are as important if not more important than the top sports stars and the uh, and the politicians and so on so um i think it's about sometimes you can get if you can land someone for an interview this is the who it doesn't really matter what they say it's just great get great to get in the room i've got a chat with you know branson i've got a chat with the governor of the bank of england um that's that's great, I think. But the quite often with with the what um, you're looking for someone that's going to say something, you know, surprising uh, or revealing, uh, you know, about their organisation or about a, a competitor and so on. So the setup is, um, I mean, I think it's different. It's different depending on which publication you're at, and it's different. You know, I've worked for myself for five years. I've done about fifty of these in the last five years so the extra question now would be well which which title is it for and and so on so I think there's often an ongoing conversation with I'd really like to talk to x um, how soon can we get them and sometimes that conversation is with their people and there have been lots of occasions when I've just emailed direct or spoken to people at parties and said look you know love to get you in the paper can we do a piece in the next in the next few months or something so it's good to have a lot of ongoing um, conversations. Um, the time itself, I mean, I, these are, I I liken these to almost a smash and grab raid. I think an hour can be too long to talk. I know some of the big US long form publications will will meet the CEO over uh, three times over lunch, breakfast, lunch and dinner and so on. I'm very much a fan of, um, you know, get in there, probably 45, 50 minutes is, is optimal and then get out again. And And my view is, uh, I remember doing a joint interview with someone. I mentioned this in the in the intro to the book. Um, a joint interview is a shocking format, and I would never do this again. So it's two journalists sat in the room with one CEO. Obviously, the CEO's ego is is at the max at that moment. And the other guys and the other guy said um, his first question was, "So what do you do then?" And I thought, "Oh, this is going to be a long hour." Um, and so what I try and do is um, research them to death. Um, I want to be able to use that 45 minutes um, uh, absolutely the best that I can. I don't want to go in say go in and say, well, um, so, you know, tell me about how what Tesco does or something. You know, we it's a given. We know Tesco. Um, I need to split the time. Or I actually need to split the write up roughly between I think a good profile for me is roughly split the words on the page half about the organization, half on the person. How did they get there? What are their motivations? And, and how do we um, 
how do we dig back into into their past? And and I think the the, the joy of writing some of these is um, is pulling together. It's not quite psychiatrists um, chair stuff, but drawing together the strands from across their life. So I interviewed you know one example. I interviewed the the boss of Sotheby's last summer, and he was interesting. Um, because he, this idea that an, uh, an investment banker who was used to carving up all sorts of companies and selling assets to the highest bidder was now selling precious artifacts to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to buyers who were interested in antiquities and so on. And um, it was nice with him to dig up. I went back 13 years and found a conversation he had with his, um, at his old, old, um, old school at Yale when he admitted that when he was studying at Yale, he thought that... Um, uh, I think I think he said that investment banking was a you know would be a total waste of time. In terms of um, structuring your interviews, do you try and um, you know warm them up a bit? Do you start with their personal life first and then get into the trickier questions, or do you go straight in and sort of the element of surprise, <laughs> if you will? Um, no, I think there's a I think there's a warming up. Uh, talk about the issues in the company and um the things they would expect to begin with but i think don't um don't dwell too long on all of that there's something about um letting them say what they have to say in the first 20 minutes and then get into the good stuff you mentioned this kind of you know doing doing your homework beforehand um would you once you've spoken to them would you put in other calls to people in a similar industry or you know would you would there be additional interviews beyond the the primary subject or is it mainly from from the time with the boss i think most of these that i've done have been um the, there's only there's only one voice in the in in the piece which is um, which is the subject, the CEO. Um, the exception to that sometimes has been the Sunday Times, where they like a, um, a corroborating quote. Um, sometimes, if if the page is if the page is long enough, and that can be quite nice, someone who can talk about their early life or how their career developed, or um, so on. Um, but I would talk. I quite often talk to people um, about. It depends. If, I, if I've met them before, then I might be more comfortable just going into interview situation. But if I haven't, it's quite nice to speak to people who will know them, speak to the competition and say, well, you know, what's this, you know, where's this guy come from? Or, you know, what, what, where's this, where's this, um, you know, uh, woman come from? I think that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Do any of the CEOs demand copy approval or probably more likely their teams? Do they ask to sort of see the piece before you, before you run it? Oh, frequently. I mean, and the, the the answer. Well, of course, that's easier for me just to uh, defer and defray now because because I work for myself. But the the answer back when I worked for a paper was, uh, "What do you think this is? Hello, magazine." Seems seems properly robust there. Um, is there? Could we talk about the kind of tone you take with this, and maybe in the context of the the Joe the Juice piece you sent over that that was sort of. Um, interesting now how do you how do you sort of draw that line between it being kind of colorful between it being a celebration and or, or a sort of take on the kind of language and the way you're you're making it what, what are you what are you conscious of when you're pulling something like that together maybe using that one as an example i think the great thing about business coverage this is not just ceo interviews or anything it, it's there's no reason it can't be um it, it's it, you you wouldn't think you can necessarily educate your audience because they're a very educated audience, but you can certainly inform them. And uh, and I think there's no reason why you can't entertain them. And I think it's great when business coverage 
breaks out of business, um, you know, out of the business pages and, and onto the front page or wherever. And of course, business has done that increasingly since the, since the financial crisis of 12, 13 years ago. So, um, yeah, I think they can be as colourful as, as any, uh, you know, sports interview or political interview with Joe and the Juice. Um, I mean, this is Casper Basset and he, 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 you know, he was a gift I mean, he he looked terribly hungover. Um, he he didn't have a. This is this is I think um, maybe three years ago, three or four years ago. He he didn't have any um, uh, any hand handholder with with him, which was great because I don't think any CEO really needs them. I generally think the more um, the more babysitters in the room, the the, the less important person this this really is. Um, so with Casper, it was great. Um, I think he had four double espressos in the time we we talked. He he looked like a, a rock star because the challenge you've got, and, and and some publications don't like to dwell too much on the adjectives and the descriptors and let them talk for themselves and and the the personality comes through in in other ways, but um, sometimes it can be a challenge if uh, if it's a man and they're just wearing uh, the boring suit and tie. But but Casper was was um, black leather jacket, uh, yeah, lots of coffee and um, and very straightforward, and that's a. That a good open um, Scandinavian boss, as, as most of them are. Uh, I've a I know someone who was thrown up on by an interview subject, but I don't know whether that was ever that made it into the into the final piece. Um, in terms of color, I was thinking of um, your Kenyan gold miners story. Um, I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit more about that because that's a, a real balance between the sort of interview subjects and the human impact of that trade and obviously the bigger business story um, underpinning it. Well, I sent you that one just to prove I, I do leave the office and leave the country sometimes. And, and, and that was, um, I got to know Fairtrade and this was a, uh, a trip to Kenya with Fairtrade. They were trying to do for gold what they'd done for bananas. So how do you accredit um, gold right the way down the supply chain? And the answer is with great difficulty, but they were really having a good a good go at it. So we talk a lot about um, business and manufacturing and entrepreneurship. And, and um, you know, it is hard for, and it's increasingly hard for um, reporters and writers, particularly if they're following the, the news cycle to, to get out of the office and really kick the tires. Um, and this was, I really enjoyed this because it was an opportunity to see absolutely, literally at the coalface, how um, business works. And also it, it was really about global economy um, because here were what they what they politely call the artisan miners. Um, these guys were down um, uh, down a very, very hot, steamy hole in the ground, um, scratching with their bare hands, um, um, little traces of precious metals that the big mining companies had left behind when they'd when they'd all quit um, Kenya a generation ago. So I think to be able to tie that together um, in a piece, which was really helped by some incredible um, photography, um, back to the people who were buying gold wedding rings in um, in Hatton Garden or whatever. I really uh, I was really pleased with the outcome. I, I definitely enjoyed that piece as well. I, I used to work in West Africa for Reuters and I remember seeing a lot of artisan mining as well there and it's it's pretty grim. There were two interesting points that I wanted to, to ask about that. The first was the, the decision not to use last names with the, the local people. What, what was the rationale behind that? And the second was how did the interface with the NGO work? Had they had they paid or the transport for the journalists to come out there and things like that? And how did you how did you police that that element of it? Do you know this? I mean, 
Do you know, I think there was, I don't think I use last names because um, in most cases, uh, I just, I just couldn't get them. I mean, it really was a whistle stop. Um, there was no, there's no um, intent or angle there. So, I mean, it was just that I needed to be consistent and I didn't have, um, I didn't have full names. Uh, and in terms of NGO, um, yeah, and the trip was funded by uh, Fairtrade, which I think, uh, I hope was, was disclosed. Um, can we move on now to your book, The Nine Types of Leader? Um, what is the origin of the project? Why did you want to write it? And could you explain some of the terms that you use in terms of lovers and alphas and, and so on? Um, I wanted, so I've worked for myself for five years and um, I had wanted to write my own book and there were other projects and other work that had that had got in the way. And then I started um, writing books with other people and I thought I really must get on with this now and I had an idea that I'd been playing around with for a while and then it was a question of finding a publisher and in the end I wrote two books in um, tandem um, which if anyone takes anything away from this podcast is never do that. Um, so I wanted, I had this idea, you know, when you've done a lot of these CEO interviews you go through a lot of CVs and they're all they're all quite polished up uh, to, to look good and you're automatically looking for, well, hang on about, what was he doing for those six months or why did she disappear for two years or, or, or whatever. And other, but other patterns emerge. So I think the first, the first grouping I thought was very interesting is, is where, do these, where do all these CEOs go first that gets them into the, into the boardroom, you know, 25, 30 years on? And um, Procter & Gamble kept coming up. Procter & Gamble... Uh, soap powder, shampoo, one of the big consumer goods companies. And there's a real group, um, I called them the golden generation, not to their faces, that trained up through the 90s at Procter & Gamble. And they've gone on to run uh, Sky, the BBC, uh, BT, Ralph Lauren, Levi Strauss, a, a load of them. So what was, it, what was it that meant that if you were flogging shampoo when you were 23, that, 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 that really prepared you to run these huge companies later in your career. So I collected, so it, it almost felt like the beginnings of my own happy families, of corporate happy families. So I thought, well, I've got these, these sellers here. And, um, and then there were other ones that, that emerged. So fixers, I'm a, I'm a big fan of. So these are the, when companies, when companies go wrong, these are the people that, that rush in um, with their hundred day plans and say, you know, fear not, I'm going to save this company. I'm going to um, renegotiate with the bank, slash, close all the shops, slash, do something else, and um, and so they they were a category as well. And so I thought of build up, built up from there, and thought, well, the founders are obvious, and um, uh, what else have I got? Lovers and diplomats and so on. And so I um, I work. My agent was uh, very thoughtful on this, and um, and I work. I worked hard on. Uh, the the taxonomy the structure and got to nine and I thought that's it nine nine is nine is a good number and so then worked it up from there and looked at what I looked at looked at who I'd spoken to in all those categories um, respoke to a number of them um, so for example I knew uh, Moya Green who was instrumental in taking the Royal Mail onto the the stock market I mean this basically an insolvent company that, that, that somehow sold to shareholders and um, and delivered a dividend and so on and went back to her and uh, in one example and really talked through 
some of these moments of of high drama when they ran I mean I think there were a few times but this is she'd been in in there a few weeks everyone was left the office on an August bank holiday and and one of her junior finance financial people said oh you realize more we're running out of money on Tuesday so so there was that and and then on top of that I went to people I hadn't interviewed before if I needed um if I needed to populate chapters like uh campaigners or humans or diplomats I thought this, the choice of nine I was fascinated by. I have a friend who edited an anthology last year and she had endless discussion about was it going to be eight pieces or 15 or seven or what was sort of optimal for, for this kind of book. And how did you, when you were discussing with your agent and with your publisher, how did you kind of zone in on, on nine as the, the number to have? Um, I felt it covered the waterfront. I felt um, I didn't... I, it 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 really felt like I could put most people into into most categories. I do make the caveat in there that um, it's possible that CEOs can change in time, and it's also possible that you can get a uh, if you like a a mixed bloodline. Um, you know, someone who's part diplomat, part seller, or, or whatever. But I felt they um, I felt they uh, covered the bases. In terms of your move to writing books. Um... What was that motivated by? Was it the sort of shrinking newspapers or was it financial? Could you tell us a, a little bit more about that? Well, the first one came to me and uh, I did a book with um, someone that uh, never quite saw the light of day. Um, there's no sinister story behind that. It just it just never made it. And so I'd, I'd realised that I'd made that conversion to uh, not writing 2,000 words, writing 80,000. And... Um, and you know you can convince yourself it's um, it's it's not quite as horrendous as it is in the in in some of the dark hours. And so there were more there were more to come. Um, I uh, was I'd had a, I had an agent, and there were opportunities that that came to us. And one of those was um, FTSE the Inside Story, which came out last um, November. So I think when I left the standard in 2015 I always wanted to carry on writing but I wanted to do I I was really open I wanted to see if I could do other things as well and, and I've um, found out across a number of things in the last few years and I think books um, it's it's uh, it, it's just a different form of journalism. Could we talk about your move to go freelance was that um, precipitated by what was going on at the, the Standard and the Independent with the, the stopping of print publication and so forth? Or was it you deciding that you, you wanted a new challenge? No, it was a good time to go. And I left before, I can't remember the chronology exactly, but the Indy was certainly uh, printing. It was printing as I left the building. Um, and now I think I'd done, uh, four, I'd done four years there, which was my longest job, amazingly. And... Um, and it felt like it felt like a good time to try everything else out there. It's a rule of the podcast that we talk about how writing uh, interfaces with people's um, you know, financial life. Um, what's the division of your income now? And be as specific or as, as vague as you like between writing and your public speaking and conference work and corporate work and, and everything else. I always know when you say it's a rule of the podcast, you are going to ask the money question. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> yes, I know we we've not come up we've not come up with different ways of introducing it yet. <laughs> I think you should shock people and ask it first. Um, I think. Look, um, I mean, I am still doing newspaper journalism. My journalism has 
broadened into books and I do um, a podcast as well, uh, which uh, brings in revenue through sponsorship. So in the last couple of years, more than half of my um, income has been uh, journalism in all its uh, different uh, different flavours, if you like. Um, obviously, writing with other people um, is better than writing, uh, can be better than writing on your own. Um, and then the other part of the, the other part of the activities you've you've alluded to it, um, it's been good. I've tried to cultivate it, and I've done a lot more in events and conference facilitation, and that's switched pretty much from in the room to um, webinar stuff. And there is also advisory work in there now, and a, a non-exec role I got a few months ago. So it's um, I liken it to spinning plates. And while you're, and that, that seems to be very much the experience of a lot of freelance we've had. Again, with with this thing where you're you're writing journalism, but you're also doing some consultancy work and, and media training and so forth. How do you how do you patrol the boundaries between that? I saw, for example, on your website, you said that you you won't profile someone you've trained, which seems very sensible and things. How do you how do you manage that one? I think that was worth yeah. I think that was worth um, pointing out. I think. Um, yeah, I try and keep it as separate as possible. It is a uh, there. There is a huge uh, sea of CEOs to um, to interview, um, and I'm as I'm upfront with everyone I write for about um, uh, you know about any any conflicting interests I might have. Um, some people would say I'm I'm a little uh, too thorough, but I don't want to be uh, to be caught out. We're all. I've got I've got to uh, protect my reputation. We're sort of going towards the end of our time, so I wondered if I could ask you about Oscar's book prize. Um, could you tell listeners a little bit about about that prize and, and how it came about? Yeah, of course. Um, so Oscar's book prize is the nationwide search for the best preschool book of the year, preschool or picture book. I tell anyone that we're in Gruffalo territory um, with this one. We're just going into uh, we're going into our eighth year. Um, and we are supported by, we have various people who help us with that. The Evening Standard helped us launch it. Um, Amazon, the National Literacy Trust and Princess Beatrice is our um, patron. And um, it was set up in honour of our son who um, who died, who we lost in uh, December 2012. And um, we, Oscar loved books and we wanted, um, we wanted something that... Uh, acted as a legacy for him and and the longer we get into it we think this is a is it a great area um there's so much in the press about child obesity and i really think child literacy um is is such a huge issue i think it's something like 25% of kids start primary school and they're behind they can't read well enough and pretty much 25% are still behind at the age of 11 and it's quite possibly the same 25%. So we want to celebrate the uh, the brilliant books. You know, I think something like one in three books sold in the UK um, are um, kids' books. That's why you have a huge hall full of them at uh, Waterstones in, in Piccadilly. And, and we also want to gently encourage parents to spend a bit of time with their kids, um, share a book, and um, it's never too early to fall in love with, with books. Great. Well, well, we'll draw this to a close there, James, but thank you for being such a such a great guest and um, really educating Rachel and myself on a whole uh, new section of the writing world for Always Take Notes. And we wish you all the best with your, uh, your projects going forward. Thank you. Hello, it's us again. 
I'm going to rejig the format of this outro, Simon, because, you know, the cringy, pointless talking about whether we enjoyed the interview, and obviously we did, format might not be working for some of our listeners. So instead, I'm going to ask you for, one... For, for, for two of our listeners, Rachel. <laughs> you know, I'm going to extrapolate and say all of them. But what is one takeaway that you have from the interview with James? The one thing I thought was very interesting was his sort of bish-bash-bosh approach uh, maybe that's the wrong way to characterise it, to his CEO interviews. Like, doesn't want to spend too much time with them just in there, 45 minutes. A very kind of self-contained art form, really. And I thought that was a kind of, it's very different to what I do, but an interesting, like, a very time-efficient and kind of just just distinct way of, way of doing things. And he's clearly a, a real pro at it. What about you, Rachel? Well, unfortunately, you've sort of stolen mine. But um, I wonder whether you're... When you interview people then, Simon, do you want like three days worth of their time? You want to like really know what they have for breakfast? <laughs> I usually want like a week and I want to like attach myself to them like a limpet <laughs> and like hang hang out with them and then talk to like 25 people they knew and stuff like that. Yeah, that's kind of my, my style. Um, but it's a different, it's a different thing. And, you know, his, um, I think, I think he's clearly very good at getting to like the heart of the matter, as it were, with these mm. people. When I did an interviewing course, we had to practice, you know, crafting an interview with just like 10 minutes. What you'd ask someone really high profile in 10 minutes and how you write your questions, just get to it. So James obviously knows exactly how to do that. Whereas I'm not very good at that. (laughs) I I just, I just sort of, I just sort of flashbacks of being at university. And I think the first interview I ever wrote, I had 10 minutes with Benazir Bhutto and I wrote this sort of spectacularly (laughs) ill-informed piece um that it was not it was not an edifying uh entry into journalism really so i'm still haunted by that um anyway but not so haunted that you haven't you know failed to bring it up so well done i almost admire that (laughs) poor benazir um anyway rachel what what have you been up to i have been sort of spinning lots of plates at the minute um but at the moment i'm working on a piece about period dramas which should be very fun. Um, I'm just trying to wrangle interviews myself, actually, at the minute. So, um, yes, I'll be working on that. And hopefully it will be coming out in a couple of weeks. So, yeah. How about you? Um, I have been trying to wrangle hospital access for a COVID story, which is OK, but tricky. Um, I finally closed my Runner's World story on blisters, which is very good. And it's got some fun illustrations, which I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, sort of, sort of busy, but but working hard. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom, and me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar, and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes, and if you'd like to leave a review or get in touch with us, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. Thank you.